Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks so much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. It is early here, still in 2022, and we are getting a lay of the land as we've seen a lot of change in government uh, on the city level. And then, of course, we have a new state election year, state session underway. Governor Kathy Hochul's first State of the State address was just given. She'll be soon releasing her first and maybe only if she doesn't win election this year, executive budget. Uh, and a lot is happening in state government as well. And obviously, on the city level, we are closely following and reporting on and discussing the administration of Mayor Eric Adams, the new city council with Speaker Adrian Adams, and so much more going on in New York City and state politics and government. So very excited for today's conversation. In just a minute, I'll be joined by State Senator Jessica Ramos, who represents New York's 13th district in the state Senate. That includes Queens neighborhoods of Corona, East Elmhurst, Jackson Heights, parts of Astoria, Elmhurst, and Woodside. She chairs the Senate Committee on Labor. Uh, She's worked on issues including farm workers' rights, child poverty, and the Excluded Workers Fund, and other things. And we have a lot to talk with State Senator Ramos about in just a second. First, uh, I do want to point you to some of our recent reporting at GothamGazette.com. Check Uh, Everything we've got going on there on city and state politics, a lot of uh, important articles about the beginning of the Adams administration in the city, the governor's state of the state address, and a variety of other issues often reporting that you can't find elsewhere. And if you've missed any recent episodes of Max Politics here, be sure to find those wherever you get your podcasts or at the Gotham Gazette website. We have all the episodes posted there as well. Had a really good discussion recently with uh, three friends and colleagues about Bill de Blasio's legacy as mayor of New York City. We've Obviously, here in New York, quickly moved on from Mayor de Blasio, but there's still a lot to consider about his eight-year tenure. And I had a really good discussion with Sally Goldenberg, Christina Greer, and Harry Siegel about how uh, Bill de Blasio's mayoralty is being discussed and remembered, should be discussed and remembered, and a lot of different facets of that legacy He, of course, may be jumping into the Democratic primary for governor that's happening this year any moment. So that will still be very relevant to uh, current events and politics, but also, of course, important to look back at someone who was mayor for eight years and the legacy uh, that he left on the city. And that will be debated for, of course, years and decades to come. Other than that conversation, which you should really check out, I've also had uh, recent guests, including the outgoing Department of Social Services Commissioner Stephen Banks to discuss the de Blasio administration's efforts around public benefits reform, homelessness prevention, uh, and more. And then uh, Congressional Representative Jamal Bowman joined me recently to check in about uh, what he's working on in Congress and the larger debates around the Build Back Better legislation and much more. So that's a a little sampling of conversations and guests we've had on the show recently. Find those and many more at Max Politics, wherever you get your podcasts or the Gotham Gazette website. All right, enough about that. Let's get to State Senator Jessica Ramos. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me again. Uh, appreciate you taking the time. So the legislative session has started in Albany. Uh, that's where you are right now as we're as we're talking here and recording here. Uh, what are your top priorities as this legislative session kicks off? I know uh, you have new legislation around child care that is maybe at the top of the list, but 
what are the few top headline priorities for you representing your Queens district, chairing the labor committee in the Senate? Uh, what are your top priorities here as we get going with this new legislative year and budget year in Albany? Well, Ben, I think that at the top of New Yorkers' minds right now is unfortunately still Omicron, right, COVID, certainly the economic recovery uh, to come. And so a lot of my outlook for this legislative session has to do with that with workers, with our small businesses, and really thinking through how we can uh, change policy, amend the law to really provide uh, working families in New York with the prosperity they deserve coming out of not only COVID, but Hurricane Ida and um, overall economic strife that that, we, that we've been experiencing. Uh, you're right. I, I just introduced a universal child care bill. It's called the Early Learning Child Care Act. And with that, uh, with that bill, um, which is carried by uh, Sarah Clark in the New York State Assembly, we're seeking to provide universal access to child care um, because, well, actually, you and I are both parents. We know how difficult it can be to find uh, child care that is affordable and that can accommodate our work hours. And I think a lot of that actually is out of sync because the nature of work is changing, because schedules are changing. And so we think that the model of having to ask parents to pay more money, even though daycare providers really aren't making a profit, has been has, has become obsolete. And really, public uh, child care shouldn't be a commodity. It's really a public utility. And so what we're doing here is providing subsidized child care for 93% of New York's uh, working families, of, of, of New York's children. Um, and our idea is predicated on this notion that there should be a safe place for a child to be dropped off at at any time of day, no questions asked. Because right now, there is an, a work requirement in order for you to receive subsidized childcare, which has never made any sense to me. I mean, you can't take your child with you to the job interview. Perhaps, you know, you're, you're seeking some sort of treatment and you can't take your child to the doctor with you or you have an appointment. And so we want uh, that to be much more facilitated for parents. Uh, right now, um, we are... Uh, subsidizing up to 200% of the poverty line. But with the bill, we're looking to double that to 400% uh, of the poverty line, meaning that we're covering 93% of uh, working families without a work requirement um, and making sure that we are giving our daycare providers a minimum wage of, of, of wage floor of $45,000 a year. And let me tell you, I've been touring the entire state. I've been to Big Flats. I've been to Warrensburg, um, you know, even visiting my Republican colleagues. Um, and I keep meeting daycare providers who haven't been able to take a day off, uh, you know, to, to go to the doctor in years or haven't been able to pay themselves or are using their apartment as the daycare and they sleep on an air mattress um, at night. And and, and that's not fair. That's not right. 
uh, when unfortunately I feel like our society has been treating our daycare providers as some sort of babysitters when actually they're educators and they are helping us raise our children and play a great, great role. That's why we want their wages to be comparable to teachers um, and why we want really to kind of take out take the money out of the equation so that the daycare professionals can focus on the task at hand. And I know you're probably asking how I'm going to pay for it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was going to get to that in a couple of minutes, but let's jump to that right now. Go ahead. So, We firmly believe that this is a triple workforce bill. Um, We're helping parents return to work. We're helping daycare providers have an improved quality of life. But we're also really making sure that we are doing what's best by our children, hopefully identifying any uh, learning disabilities or even motor skill hindrances, um, making sure that we are centering socio-emotional learning. And in that way, I mean, a lot of these kids are really only 20, 25 years away from working for some of the biggest companies here in New York State. And that's why we're taxing the or proposing a tax uh, to the top 5% of big businesses. Um, A modest 0.25.5 and all the way up to 1% of a payroll tax um, on the top businesses of New York uh, who have really done very well during this pandemic. And we believe this is a smart investment for them to make for their current workforce and their future workforce. Um, this is our legislative proposal. And you know we're hoping uh, now with Jamal Bailey on as our co-prime sponsor, and as we're working to get more co-sponsors, that we're able to make this a reality as soon as possible so that all of our rhetoric about having a fair and just economic recovery from the pandemic is actually a reality. And so this um, this has a budget component. The new state budget for next fiscal year needs to be done uh, by April 1st, by the deadline when the new fiscal year begins. So this is your window for sort of, as you just said, gaining sponsors, gaining support in the state Senate. Uh, working with your assembly colleagues to get it passed through both houses and working with the governor to then fund it and get it into the budget. Is that the sort of the, the big picture here on trying to make this proposal reality? And no, that, that's exactly right, Ben. Um, and actually, then let me take advantage of this opportunity to ask your listeners to please call your state senator um, and ask them to sign on to the early learning Child Care Act so that we can make this a reality um, by April 1st. Like you say, these next few weeks are critical uh, to getting this done. Um, and I mean, it's a game changer for parents, for our entire state. I truly believe that it would make our state a lot more attractive uh, to employers um, and um, and hopefully do away with a lot of our headaches and, and, and give working families some peace of mind. Now, Governor Hochul has uh, been involved in issues related to child care before. This is actually something she was working on when she was lieutenant governor under uh, sort of the direction of governor, former Governor Cuomo. Um, now, as governor, she's she's talked about child care as a as a uh, significant priority for her. Um, she's called on the federal government to pass Build Back Better, which would include, you know, significant uh, funding for child care in her state of the state uh, policy book and, and her address. She talked a little bit about child care and she said, if there isn't 
uh, this major federal action. She's going to try to expand access to child care for 100,000 New York families by increasing the eligibility, which you mentioned uh, also doing from 200% of the federal poverty line to 225% and investing $75 million in state funds for better pay for child care workers. What do you think about those two potential steps? Do you see that as as a likely uh, compromise here, if nothing else, uh, moving forward? Look, look I, I think that the governor being a mom understands this issue very personally, but I do think that we can have a much more bolder vision um, that really is uh, deserving of um, a world-class first-in-the-nation program. Um, and that's why we we set out to do this in a responsible way and in a way that is sustainable. Um, my issue with federal funding is that it is not consistent. It is not dependable. And so I would not want there to be any financial insolvency of a child care program. And I definitely would not want to want this to become one of those programs where parents have to take a day off from work to hop on a bus and come up to Albany to grovel for a few cents every year. I don't want that to happen. And that's why we're asking, you know, our biggest businesses who do have tremendous financial solvency and beyond because they've done so well over the past few years to to really be able to provide us with the stability of having a program that is continuously funded and is not left up to the whims of the political pendulum in Washington, D.C. We have a political pendulum here in New York State, too. I mean, we know that sometimes New Yorkers can 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 consider and, and, and elect uh, Republican governors. And I don't want this program to be left up to the, the whim, those political whims either. Um, and, and that's why Sarah and I um, settled on uh, really depending on our big businesses uh, as the main funding stream and then utilizing any federal dollars that come after um, to supplement the program and, and, and build out capacity and certainly do right by our day- daycare providers. So um, clear something up for me uh, here. There's two of you, two state senators representing parts of New York City, yourself and state Senator Jabari Brisport, who represents parts of Brooklyn. You chair the Labor Committee in the state Senate. He chairs, I believe, the Children and Families Committee. You've uh, both now introduced uh, pretty significant legislation around child care. You did separate tours of, of the state, which struck me as a little bit uh, strange. Um, he has a different bill here on child care expansion. Uh, is this just, you know, two state senators from different parts of the city with a little bit of a different focus and, and you know, just sort of doing your own things and, and you guys are going to try to coordinate on a compromise here? What's, what's going on with this sort of seemingly, you know, kind of competing bills and efforts here from, from the two of you, yeah. both, both Democrats, both progressives? Uh, what's, what's happening there? Well, I think it's great that we both have child care bills. And I almost wish that every single senator had one um, because what <laughs> uh-huh. we need are bold ideas. And and, and really, this is the moment um, to to really shift these paradigms. Um, the bill that my colleague is carrying is one that I'll be signing on to. I think it's a great bill um, that really sets uh, goals for the state of providing universal child care um, up to 100 percent 
um, subsidized child care. Um, he sets out uh, for the task force to figure that out over the course of four years. Um, and that's something that we certainly should do. Um, I think in the meantime, we need to start getting our gears in motion and actually start to implement and roll out a child care plan that addresses the urgent need for it right, 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 right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that's actually why I, I've actually put in the paperwork to co-sponsor uh, Senator Brisport's bill, because I think it's worth passing votes um, and making sure that we're doing our due diligence, addressing the need, but also looking at the bigger goal of covering everybody in the near future. Um, and um, I think once the math for that is figured out, then 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 we'll be in a better place. Um, our bill is is very comprehensive and um, and and allows us uh, to implement uh, this program um, much much sooner. Uh, right. So I think I mean I think you got it. Some of the differences. If people want to get into more of the details of the bills, they can obviously look those up. Um, but yours, you know, providing um, perhaps even though it's 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 pretty ambitious, it's you know some very sort of. Uh, near and medium term concrete, you know, steps uh, uh, to really expand childcare in the state uh, fairly quickly. Um, all right, so so people can can take a look at that. Um, let's talk about a few other priorities of yours. Um, the there is this question of the eviction moratorium expiring uh, in just a few days. Do you think the state is going to take action on that? You're obviously uh, someone who uh, wants to see that extended. Governor Hochul has played that very close to the vest, didn't talk about it in her state of the state address. When she's asked about it, she says she's talking with legislative leaders. As we speak here on uh, January 11th, what's the status of those negotiations from your vantage point and, and is the state going to, to do something on that? Well, unfortunately, we're yet to hear from the governor. Um, now we're just a few days away from from that deadline, and unfortunately, uh, more than two hundred thousand New York families are on the verge of eviction. And um, with uh, so many job openings at such a low wage, unfortunately, it's it's not really helping. So I'm hoping that she pronounces herself soon and that she has heard the voices of all of the New Yorkers who are in dire straits right now. And I know this, I'm a renter too. Um, And though I'm not in that predicament, I know of neighbors who are going through a very difficult time. And obviously we we fear the worst, uh, not only of course, because of our compassion for our fellow New Yorkers, but because in the long term, we would end up spending a lot of money trying to solve this problem the more we prolong it. So we're hoping that she looks at the good cause eviction bill, sees it as a way for us to help people keep the roof over their heads. Um, but I mean, the rent is too damn high in New York. We, we've known this for a very long time. This is a pre-pandemic problem. Um, you know, there's ongoing conversations about supportive housing and then some. Uh, and and that's that's a place where there's a lot of work to do. At some point, the eviction moratorium has to end, though, right? I mean, at some point, uh, some so much of this has to get settled in some way. There's obviously uh, efforts to bring more rent, federal rent relief dollars to New York State. There's 
you know, been lots of um, hiccups and questions about the program and how, you know, it has to go through the the landlords and the money can't go directly to the renters to then pay. Mm -hmm. Um, But that relies on a lot of coordination between tenants and landlords. There's all sorts of question marks and issues. But at some point, you know, an eviction moratorium has to be lifted, even if it's then sort of absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, I mean, the eviction moratorium is punting. It's not an actual solution. It was a way for us to 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 in the middle of of chaos, be able to to allow people to stay in their homes. I mean, I I have uh, almost a dozen shelters in my district that are just teeming with people. I have people on on such a cold day as as today sleeping on the street. Um, And and that's that's a reality, not even across the city, but across the state of New York. Uh, So the eviction moratorium, you know, is is needs to end and we need lasting solutions. We're we're pushing the good cause bill, which is uh, a bill that Senator Salazar carries. Um, and um, but we're hoping we're hoping that a lot of the dynamics uh, with the real estate industry are fixed in perpetuity so that people from New York can actually continue to afford to make New York their home. And the good cause eviction bill, as written, would um you know, would it would try to uh, put some st- pretty strict limits on evictions. It would try to uh, regulate rent increases. Um, it has some, you know, pretty significant sort of tenant protection elements to it. There's obviously, as you indicated, some real estate landlord uh, interests who who are opposed to the legislation. This one seems to me like the big perhaps, you know, sort of battleground uh, bill of this of this session, at least as we're looking at it right now. Do you sort of see that as as being the case because of how precarious things are with uh, people's Absolutely. living situations during the pandemic? Do you think there's going to be the support there for for good cause eviction? Um, it, you know, it seems like one of those ones where the legislative leaders have to be uh, you know, sort of very wary about the larger political, you know, dynamics of the state and where in, you know, many parts of New York City and some other, you know, sort of more democratic areas, it, you know, it seems to be more popular, you know, it's the type of thing that, um, you know, could could be in that sort of political middle ground. And, and the governor is obviously weighing that as well. Yeah, look, the housing stock across the state varies uh, tremendously. Um, certainly outside the city, between Long Island, more rural areas of state, right? Um, and it's an issue that we continue to debate in my house, certainly, and I would imagine that the assembly as well. Um, but, you know, we're hoping that we're able to put people over profit here. I mean, we all know that it can be very hard to kind of provide a person or a family with all the services they need in order to give them that financial stability back and provide them with a permanent home. I mean, having worked for the city myself, I've seen people stuck in the cycle of shelters and homelessness for years, if not decades. And um, that's, that's something we can't wish on anybody. And we need to avoid at all costs. So we're, we're hoping that our colleagues uh, from more suburban and rural areas um, can understand this and, 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 and come around to the idea of, of keeping people housed. Speaking of your colleagues in um, in suburban areas and and maybe even rural areas, um, this is obviously an election year for uh, all of the state legislature and the statewide seats. Um, the 
state Senate Democrats have developed a very large majority, I think larger than anybody expected at, at this point after the last uh, couple of election cycles. Um, but, you know, there's been some signs that um, there's been there's a bit of a swing back towards uh, Republicans a bit. I don't think anybody thinks that Republicans will take back the state Senate in this year's elections. But there are questions around can Republicans win back at least a few seats to you know regain some momentum toward perhaps taking back the majority in the future in the state Senate. And one of the issues that seems to be, um, you know, really one of these focus issues is the issue of bail reform. Are your um, uh, not not to get into a discussion here about all the details and merits, but where policy meets politics are some of your uh, suburban colleagues raising this in state Senate, you know, discussions among the the majority to say we need to look at this again. Is there a discussion happening among you and your colleagues about whether there will be additional changes to the bail laws? Look, there's definitely discussions about bail reform. Um, I'm someone who's also been talking about bail reform because I think that we need to actually address the elephant in the room, which is mental health. The mental, the, the bail reform measures that we passed were, were incomplete. Um, what we need is to be able to provide judges with the tools to give uh, people who are charged or incarcerated people with the opportunities to actually receive the services and or treatment in order to correct their behavior. I mean, this is what we're, we always argue. The issue with the correction system is that there's no actual correction happening. There's no rehabilitation. Um, there is no, uh, there, there aren't any um, solid ways in which uh, we can expect these individuals to, to reintegrate into our society necessarily in, in, a, in a way that they are giving us their best. Um, and so actually in response to that, I'm introducing this legislative session, my treatment, not jails bill. I visited Rikers several times um, over the past few months. Um, and the way we've been treating those who are um, mentally ill in our state is has been really cruel and ineffective. And so what we're trying to do is really create a diversion or alternative to that without the need for the defendant to accept an actual guilty plea and, and, and have them accept treatment. Um, this is, this is I think, one of the ways that we can complement what we did with bail reform um, and actually, um, uh, you know, tie up those loose ends. But, you know, let's not forget, I mean, you said yourself, we're not really going to get into the debate of the merits, but, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, 90, 94% of these, of, of these folks are returning to court. Um, and and um, are uh, cooperating with the process. And I think that that's really important because the smaller percentage that has fallen through the cracks actually needs a lot of help. And I think this actually speaks to years and decades of austerity politics and um, the failure to fund, uh, you know, treatments and psychiatric beds. And, and I mean, we, we just went we're, we're going through covid which is a collective traumatic moment and we're not investing at all in anybody's mental health we're all burned out we're stressed out um we're going you know through tough economic times um and and, and this is really what matters most um so so this is going to be a, another big priority of mine this session 
Okay, interesting. Um, all right, let's hit on a, a few more things in our in our uh, last I don't know five five eight more minutes together here. Um, you are pushing for uh, a, a new version of the excluded workers fund, making state uh, employment aid available to those who don't qualify very often because they're undocumented. Where is that at, and do you and do you foresee there being appetite again for for another round of excluded workers fund um, legislation and funding? I would imagine that there's a huge appetite because I mean, just based on this entire conversation that we've been having, right? There are still a ton of New Yorkers who are behind on rent, and that includes people who were not able to access unemployment insurance, didn't get a stimulus check, didn't qualify for PUA. And really what we did with the Excluded Workers Fund was create that safety net for people who are paid in cash. And yes, many are undocumented, but no, not everybody is undocumented. A lot of them are born and raised New Yorkers. And it's really just a reflection of the reality of our current economy and our current workforce. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of these people um, just didn't qualify for those benefits despite paying taxes. And this is really important because with that first version of the excluded workers fund that we passed um, and implemented last year, we had created two tiers. And Yet 99% of those who were approved were approved for tier one. That means that they had paid taxes in 2019, 2020, and 2021, and yet they didn't qualify for any benefits. And I mean, I don't know about you, but to me, that's wild, right? Because it, that means that our that system is completely out of whack with what how the actual workforce is maneuvering in our economy. So obviously, these people with the $15,600 that they've received have been able to catch up on rent, pay off medical bills, put food on the table, right? Provide their children um, with school supplies that are needed. Um, and in, in that kind of way, that, that means that money's not even theirs, right? Sure. This is money that is being t- pumped back into our economy. So yes, I'm coming back What's for the 3 goal? billion more. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm okay. coming I'm coming back for 3 billion more this session for the second version of the excluded workers fund and we're looking towards a permanent solution because mm-hmm. this is not sustainable and it's completely unfair to taxpayers in our state. Interesting. Um, you are going to be introducing, I believe, a bill uh, around minimum wages in the nail salon industry. Is that correct? And and what what's the why this specific um, sector of the economy? Yeah, you know, for a long time, I mean, even in the New York, the New York Times did a great job a few years ago of really tackling the issue in nail salons, nail salon workers not being safe at work. There's rampant wage theft in that industry. And these are all small businesses, right? I, I mean, nobody is making a complete and utter killing, um, you know, with their nail salons, even if they own a chain. And so what I'm going to be proposing and introducing very, very soon is a sectoral bargaining proposal um, that allows um us here at the state government to really be able to to kind of mediate uh, the conversation, the negotiation uh, between nail salon owners and nail salon workers um, so that they are able to actually uh, seek a, a better a better way of life. Look, I mean, as it is through an executive order, 
the previous governor had done away with the tipped wage for nail salon workers. And yet most nail salon workers are not getting paid at least $15 an hour. A lot of them are getting paid much, much less um, and are being taken advantage of. And that has to stop, right? The, the, I mean, nobody can afford to work for free in New York. So so, so you, you just worked on this with farm workers passing uh, historic legislation um, in, in your first session there in, in all. Albany in 2019. Uh, you're looking to sort of replicate a version of this with nail salon workers. Are there, are there other uh, sectors and classifications of workers that need to also be included here? Should this really be done sort of sector by sector, or is there a better way to do this? You know, I, I, I do try to look at things uh, by sector by sex, sector as much as I can, just because really no industry is really the same as the other. Um, but uh, I mean, all of the this, there's a larger conversation to be had about worker misclassification that actually speaks to why the unemployment insurance system doesn't work. Um, I mean, people are shopping for Instacart. People are driving Ubers and Lyfts. People are, you know, uh, kind of piecemealing. Uh, you know, the way in which they they are able to provide for themselves and their families. And so, I mean, Uber and Lyft drivers are certainly um, a group of workers that I'm very interested in helping um, in making sure that they're properly classified as employees under the law. It doesn't make any sense to me that uh, they're workers when it comes to the unemployment insurance office, uh, right? And then once they exit the office, they're suddenly magically not employees anymore. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me. That just like it doesn't make sense to me that even though we've been providing unemployment insurance to these Uber and Lyft drivers throughout the pandemic, Uber and Lyft is yet to make a contribution to our unemployment insurance fund in New York State. They owe us millions and millions of dollars. And once I'm done tabulating that that bill, I will certainly be asking them for their money because what they are doing is taking advantage of our system. And that is unfair. Hmm. Interesting. Um, a lot more to discuss there down the line, but I'll, I'll ask you about a couple other things for now. You want to reopen the state's minimum wage law. Um, you're, you're, you have legislation where you're looking to basically just change it so that the minimum wage um, is determined by the commissioner of labor and making increases based on inflation. So the minimum wage is, you know, as as long as inflation is continuing, is is going up. Is that correct? Is that something you see as a priority for your conference and the and the state senate this this session, or is that a longer term project? This is super duper important to New Yorkers and especially pertinent right now. Right, we're all talking about inflation. The cost of living in New York is ridiculous. The price of food in New York right now is astronomical. I mean, I'm spending a ton more money on groceries every week. Um, and, and, and it's getting harder and harder for everybody. The minimum wage never is able to outwardly keep up with the cost of living. And this is why my proposal is to peg it, um, to, to peg the minimum wage to inflation um, so that worker spending power can actually keep pace. Um, I think this is really important and uh, I think saves us a lot of time, not, not 
only all New Yorkers, but the legislature in having to figure out when is the right political environment to bring this up? How do it is it that we figure out, you know, how to raise the wage? Should you know, why is New York Kinda City like always the, higher the than the rest hikes. of the state? <laughs> yeah, it's just it's Remove, just it's not fair. Mm-hmm. It's not fair for working families. And and, and really, it's it we should the minimum wage should just be able to keep up with the cost of living full stop. Mm-hmm. So when you're, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, just cause eviction or continuing the eviction moratorium, you're talking about uh, some tax increases to fund your child care proposal. You're talking about additional increases to the minimum wage. You're talking about a lot of things where, um, you know, you're going to get sort of pushback from moderates, from conservatives, uh, certainly from, you know, potentially on some of these things from uh, people like Governor Kathy Hochul, who's trying to win a statewide election. Um, are you are you concerned at all about, you know, sort of the degree to which this agenda uh, that you're laying out here, at least as your priorities, which which may very well, of course, reflect uh, many of your constituents in your in your Queens district. But are you concerned at all about sort of that that tilt and that balance and the, you know, sort of infighting among Democrats about priorities, especially in, in this election year? You know, I'm very confident in my organizing skills and my team's organizing skills. We were told that the excluded workers fund was a crazy idea and would never in the million years happen. And yet we were able to make it a reality. And we even saw other states and municipalities in other parts of the country follow suit. So I'm not going to listen to the naysayers. I'm going to keep working for for uh, not only my constituents, but for all working families in New York. I'm confident that people can see see the economic reality of the fact that we don't have any money in, um, in, in in working class communities across the state. And that's because it's being hoarded by billionaires. I've always said I, I'm interested in helping more New Yorkers become millionaires. We need to pump more money into uh, our small co- smaller communities and really invest in entrepreneurship, which is why I also, you know, fight so hard for, for street vendors and for small business owners, especially restaurant owners. Um, And so, you know, we have to stop letting billionaires pay fewer taxes than us and because they're hoarding the money. They keep it in all of their assets and it doesn't get pumped back into uh, our streets. And so, I mean, I think by and large, without, you know, giving everything political tags or, or labeling everything, that people understand this fundamental economic principle and that we, we need to figure out how to do that in an equitable way. And this is the session to do it. This is the session to do it. Never again, I hopefully, are we going to be presented with this opportunity to completely shift our thinking and the paradigm of our economy in New York. Last two questions for you, Senator Ramos. Um, I've been sort of waiting to hear a little bit more about this, but I think a process is ongoing. Tell me if I've missed anything. But the question around transportation to LaGuardia Airport um, you have said in the past uh, you're supportive of extending existing rail and subway lines, creating a dedicated bus lane to provide direct access and service to LaGuardia. Uh, there are questions around the air train proposal. The governor has obviously put that on on pause with the, the Port Authority. Um, 
any any sort of updates on that? Has that sort of fallen off the table for now? Um, I was I was seeing if maybe the governor was going to talk more about that in her state of the state around you know big infrastructure thinking. Uh, any any updates for us on that, or is that sort of on pause? Well, the governor did certainly uh, speak to this issue. The LaGuardia Air Train is, I think, a little more than paused. It, I think it's completely on ice and, and, and hopefully halted forever, forever more, because I will fight that if it ever resurfaces with all of my might until my dying day. Um, it was the wrong way to spend money, how to invest money in 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 real in real infrastructure and real uh, public transportation that serves our communities. I've been a proponent of extending the N and W line, and since I entered the Senate, I've been talking about the Tri Borough. Uh, Express or the Triborough train that would connect uh, Queens to both the Bronx and Brooklyn. I mean, this this actually reflects how our economy has decentralized Manhattan, certainly after the pandemic. So I was very happy to hear Governor Hochul talk about uh, the in what she's calling the Interborough Express uh, between Queens and Brooklyn on existing freight rail. I would just want her to go a little farther north so that that I can visit my aunt in the box. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, that proposal obviously got a lot of attention and is, is um, you know, uh, one of the highlights of, of the sort of big thinking infrastructure planning that people are interested in if it can be sort of uh, done right and, and can get, you know, local officials on board who can push through, you know, the inevitable uh, aspects of community opposition and such. Um, all right, more on, more on that another time. Last question: When um, Attorney General Letitia James jumped into the gubernatorial primary, you you endorsed her. You're among her first endorsers. She obviously has since changed her mind about that run. She's running for reelection as Attorney General. Um, as you look at this primary for governor, we have Governor Kathy Hochul. We have Public Advocate Jamani Williams is running. We expect uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio, who you at one point worked for at, at City Hall, to jump into the fray. We obviously have uh, Representative Tom Swazi in that primary as well. I don't expect you to be endorsing him uh, because of how your politics diverge. But <laughs> how do you... Um, how do you how are you sizing up the primary for governor? Should we expect a different endorsement from you in the in the coming uh, days or weeks? And, and who would that be for if so? Yeah, right now, I'm really focused on talking to my neighbors and uh, hoping that they will give me another two years to continue to serve and and finish all of the work that I've begun. Um, that's really where my head is right now. Um, we'll see what happens. I think Governor Hochul has been doing a great job. I, I always love to highlight the fact that Governor Hochul clearly likes other people. She talks to other people and she looks at them in the eye and, and, and she really, I mean, I've seen her connect with my neighbors. And so um, I, I'm really heartened by her leadership. Very sad that Tish dropped out. I, I mean, I've, I've been a Letitia James fan um, since I was a teenager. And so I, um, you know, we'll see how this race begins to unfold um, over the next few months. Petitioning is starting in February. Uh, but really, I'm hunkered down trying to figure out my own operation, Ben, to be honest with you. Um, but as we know, the cookie crumbles very fast in politics. So <laughs> yes. we might have to check in again in a few weeks. OK. And and is should I read anything in, and, and listeners read anything into that that sort of, you know, you, you were a, a longtime ally of Letitia James and fan, as you said, and supporter. Yeah. 
she's no longer running. And, you know, you obviously need a good working relationship with Governor Hochul. Uh, should we read anything into the, you know, the idea that maybe yeah. you want to either stick with the current governor now or, or stay out of it? I, I don't think you should read into it now. I mean, I, I think I always strive to have a working relationship with the executive, be it the governor or be it the mayor, even if we fundamentally disagree on a few issues, which I do with, with Governor Hochul, right? She, she's far more conservative than I am, she's more middle of the road than I am. Um, but I, I think, you know, she's just such a distinct departure um, from Voldemort, uh, her predecessor, um, that um, that that it's it's allowed us to see to feel a, a renewed hope uh, for our state. But I mean, you know, I, I also have a great relationship with our public advocate Jumani Williams, who has been a longtime progressive stalwart. Um, and um, well, I, I know how former Mayor De Blasio operates and works. Um, and so, like I said, I think we're, we'll see how this race unfolds over the next few months, especially as petitioning gets started um, and, and how New Yorkers are feeling. You know, I All think right. that's that's ultimately the more, most important thing. All right. State Senator Jessica Ramos, we covered a lot of ground there in a, in a relatively uh, <laughs> moderate amount of time. But thanks. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, Jessica Ramos represents New York's 13th State Senate District uh, out of Queens and chairs the Labor Committee in the State Senate. Uh, appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thanks. Good to catch up with you. You too. Thanks.